0: As we sang that wonderful African-American spiritual, it occurred to me that I would like to personally thank the choir and their leadership for us in singing these wonderful spirituals through the month of February as we celebrate Black History Month. And as we sang this particular spiritual, I was struck by how it calls for us to live out our mission at Riverside Church. The mission at Riverside Church is through searching thoughtfully, serving passionately, living joyfully, following Christ. We, each of us, are called out into the world to live so God may use us. And our job at the church is to equip and enable each member to be that presence of Christ in the world. Your job as members of the church is to claim that mission, that individual particular mission for yourself. As a teacher or a manufacturer or a business person or lawyer or homemaker or retired person in every place to claim that mission to be used the way God can be useful. It is exactly what this morning's passage holds up for us, and challenges and urges us to live into. May God open up to us an understanding of this word as it is brought to us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. At that very time, that is to say, there's all kinds of urgency going on in Jesus' teaching. He's talking about how things are coming to the fore. We need to get ready, uh, get be on guard At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. And in the way of Jesus, he taught them a parable. And it goes, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? The gardener replied, sir... Let it alone for one more year until I dig round it and put manure on it, and if it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, then you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Faced with the untimely tragedy and death of Laura Erdely two weeks ago today, 20 years old, And in fact, the rash of deaths recently at Riverside, we are confronted with the question Jesus faced in this morning's passage Why do these tragedies happen? In this morning's tragedy, two recent events had transpired, apparently. Men had made their way to Jerusalem to make sacrifices in the temple, and for no reason anyone could understand, Pilate, the Roman military governor, killed them and mingled their blood with the sacrifices they were to make on the altar. People wondered why. And then a tower from Siloam fell and killed 18 person standing near it, and people asked the same question, why? Did God will it? People came to Jesus wanting him to answer the question. In Laura's service eight days ago, I asked the same question myself, why? And now providentially, or coincidentally, this passage today pops up. For us to deal with the exact same issue, why do bad things happen to apparently or seemingly good people? Why do innocent people suffer? Now, for each of us, as I said at Laura's service, that why question may be on our hearts. And we want an answer, a satisfactory answer. But the truth is that there is none. There is no clear answer from the Bible or from theology or from philosophy about why, if God is completely, fully God, that is to say, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful, why God allows such innocent suffering. Our first thought often is that we, we or they must have done something wrong to deserve it, Call it punishment or karma or justice or consequences. Somewhere, sometime in our or their life or in a previous life, we've messed up and now God is calling in the chips. Since we keep score so righteously about what is right and wrong, and we do, you know, when something good or bad happens, it has to be just desserts. But I've got to say, to that kind of simple explanation, Jesus clearly and unequivocally responded, no. No. Do you think, he said, that because these people suffered this way, they were worse sinners than others? Has no bearing on it, he said. Another way we try to make sense of it is in a sort of opposite way by saying that maybe those who died were really good people and God needed them in heaven more than God needed them on earth. So God took their lives in order to fill a sort of heavenly help wanted ad. Like someone said to me soon after Nancy died, God must have needed an artist in heaven more than on earth. I almost jumped over the table and grabbed her by the throat. I should have restrained myself, but I blurted out, Oh, yeah, more than my two teenage daughters. If this is the way God is, I said, then you can have it. Pastors sometimes gather together and compare notes on the worst things we have heard others say in the face of suffering And that one, by the way, usually wins the Academy Award. Other Oscar nominees are, If you think that you have it bad, let me tell you about my sister. Or one that always gets nominated, God never does anything without a reason. Which sounds pretty good until you think about it. Oh, yeah? In every case where there is innocent suffering... Infants? An eight-month-old with a brain tumor? Syria? God causes it and does it with a reason in mind? I, I don't know the answer to that, but I think in my own belief, I can't believe that's true. For me, at least, it works better for me to understand it this way, that nothing happens that God does not bring something good and redemptive out of it. Not that God causes it, but that nothing happens that God does not use that for a purpose greater than the event itself. That in suffering and tragedy, through the power of redemption and resurrection, God brings meaning weaves like a tapestry all the tattered threads that have been left hanging into some picture or vision of what it the kingdom of God is all about, uses it, uses it, but doesn't cause it. As Paul said in Romans 5, through the peace and grace of Christ we come to know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. God's way, as the cross clearly shows, is the way that redeems darkness and death and brings new things to bear as to why our feeble, vacuous explanations meant only to make us feel better really can't hold any water. Which is why Jesus says twice, in case we missed it, do you think those who died were worse sinners or offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, he says, an imperative and whether or not Jesus knew the answer to that, he doesn't care to give us the answer of why. In fact, he changes the question entirely. He brings a new question to bear, and the question he brings to bear is this What now? What next? What are you, we, going to do now after the death, the divorce? The addiction, the diagnosis, the firing, the loss. What are you, we, going to do now? And his response to that is equally imperative. I tell you, if you do not repent, you will end up like they did. Ouch! Unless you repent, you will end up like they did? This doesn't sound like the sweet... Loving Jesus boy what a friend we have in Jesus shepherd image of Jesus that we hold in our hearts plus if you listen to it it seems to contradict what he just said that is to say that your fate is not related to whether or not you were good or bad at least in this world but then he turns the whole thing around and says if you don't repent you're going to go like they did now this kind of response in seminary would have earned an F in the pastoral care class. Using tragedy and the suddenness of death as leverage to get us repent to repent reminds me of some of those churches I have attended at funerals where the pastor saw the whole group of people there as an opportunity to evangelize them The coffin's up front and of course it's open and and Harry is looking up supposedly at heaven and he's perfectly quaffed and buffed and people walk by the casket and look at him and say, boy, Harry never looked better. I mean, how can you not smile at that? And what you discover is the reason they're saying Harry never looked better is because they like him dead better than they did alive because he was such a scoundrel. And the preacher's looking down at this, trying to bring grace and mercy into the service, but you can tell his heart's just not in it. And what he says in between the lines, pointing to poor old Bill, is that one day if you do not repent and accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, You will not look like you were resting in peace like Harry, but your souls will be rotting in H-E-L-L. I hate extortion like that. Sometimes preachers get back at that kind of extortion, like the story I think I told of the preacher who goes to visit the richest man in the small Texas town, After his brother died, both men were members of the church, though they never set foot in it, never gave the church a dime. So the preacher goes to talk about the brother's funeral, and the brother says to him, Look, I know we've not been great members, and we're not even very well liked in this town, but if you can come uh, some way to summon up some words of kindness about my brother being a decent man, then I will write a large check to pay off all the debt in the church. Time came for the funeral. The preacher gets up and says, We have come to bury Bob Ayers, who next to his brother was quite a saint. In this morning's passage, Jesus doesn't seem worried that his urgent response, unless you repent, the same thing will happen feels like a kind of extortion. Sometimes, you know, just sometimes it's necessary. I don't know. Sometimes it's just necessary to be a little in your face and harsh and urgent to get us to wake up and look at our lives. The fact is that Jesus knew time was of the essence. That's the whole point of the people dying. And when time is running out, maybe the most loving thing you can do is cut to the chase. You keep living the life you're living, smoking the way you are, eating that way and not exercising, then you're not going to live past 40, the doctor says. If you see someone on the edge of a cliff about to jump, you don't say, excuse me, I understand you think that you know what you were doing, but you might want to consider the consequences of your actions before you jump. Instead, you grab him by the belt and you pull him back and you shout, stop, do you know what you were doing? Sometimes urgency is called for that's why jesus followed his urgent call for repentance with this parable there was this fig tree you see that had been in the garden for three years and hadn't produced squat so the owner says it's just wasting space and using fertilizer and water cut it down let's put a new tree there but the gardener says you know if we dig a little around its roots and fertilize it some more let's give it one more year and see if it bears fruit and the owner of the Vineyard says, okay, if it bears fruit, good. If it doesn't, we cut it down. The bad news in this story is that, well, a lot of life has by now been wasted bearing no fruit. But the good news is that there's still time. There's still time. Jesus trying to jolt us Knowing how short life is wants us to know that we urgently need to look at our lives and decide who we are and how we want to live them, for time is of the essence. This is his answer to what next. This is what he means by repent. We usually think it means to stop sinful things like Alcohol, tobacco, and all the other small immoral things that we hold. Usually, we think it means that. That's not what it means. It means to prune our pride by confessing that we really don't know as much as we think we do or we try to convince others that we know. It means to just stop. Just stop long enough To let life dig around our roots and to let ourselves look more deeply into the heart of things about who we are and what we do and why we do them. To look more deeply in that place so that we can ask our question of who am I and what am I doing. Repentance means to open our eyes to the deep shame that divides us and drives our pride-filled egos. Repentance means to own up to the truth that many times we engineer a life that takes us down the wrong track. Repentance means to see that we are blind unless something happens to shake us up To bring us awake or somehow that Jesus breaks in on us and rocks our worlds. Time is of the essence because at some point in this life at least, there is a line in which we cannot go back. That the train has left the station and it is too far down the tracks. Lee Atwater, the Republican consultant from South Carolina, became the Republican National Committee chair in the 1980s, was known for his relentless negative attacks on opponents. When Tom Turnipseed, a Democratic opponent for the legislature in South Carolina, ran, uh, it was discovered that when he was a teenager, Tom Turnipseed had been depressed. So Lee Atwater publicized that he had been hooked up to jumper cables. Atwater planted lies, fabricated facts, and created ads like the Willie Horton ad, you might be old enough to remember, used against candidate Dukakis. Trying to get us to fall for the lowest common denominator of black fear. And while this was nothing new in election politics, Atwater took it to a whole new level. After being diagnosed with brain cancer, Atwater apparently took Jesus' urgent words to heart and repented. In the months after his illness, Atwater converted to Catholicism and in an act of repentance issued a number of public and written letters to those he had hurt and slandered during his career. In a June 1990 letter to Tom Turnipseed, he stated, It is very important to me that I let you know that out of everything that has happened in my career, one of the low points remains the so-called jumper cable episode, adding My illness has taught me something about the nature of humanity, love, brotherhood, and relationships that I never understood and probably never would have. So from that standpoint, there is some truth and good in everything. What took him so long? Why did it take a brain tumor? In a February 1991 article for Life magazine, Atwater wrote, My illness helped me to see that what was missing in society is what was missing in me. A little heart, a lot of brotherhood. The 80s, he said, were about acquiring, acquiring wealth, power, prestige. Just the 80s? I know. I acquired more wealth, power, and prestige than most. But you can acquire all you want and still feel empty. What power wouldn't I trade for that little more time with my family. What price wouldn't I pay for an evening with friends? It took a deadly illness to put me eye to eye with that truth, but it is a truth that the country, caught up in its ruthless ambitions and moral decay, can learn on my dime if we had only learned it. I don't know, he said, who will lead us through the 90s, but they must be made to speak to the spiritual vacuum at the heart of American society, this tumor of the soul. turns out that still some people couldn't buy it. His supposed friend Ed Rollins stated in a 2008 documentary called Boogeyman, the Lee Atwater story, that Atwater had told him that following the living Bible was what was giving him faith, and so Rollins said to Mary Matlin, I really sincerely hope that Lee found peace. And she said, Ed, when we were cleaning up his things afterwards, the Bible was still wrapped in the cellophane it had never been taken out of the package, which is just to say everything there is to say, and that is that he was still spinning even until the end. Maybe. Or maybe because Ed Rollins and Mary Maitland had yet repented that they were the ones doing the spin. When it comes to spinning the truth, we can never underestimate that thing in us that will not admit that we were wrong. After losing so many loved ones at Riverside recently, Jesus' words have never been more relevant. Time is short. Therefore, let us bear fruit worthy of repentance. Turning back to the kind of person that God created us to be, living lives that yield the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Those are the fruits. Jesus wants us to know how urgent this is now. Do you need to forgive someone in your life or be forgiven from someone in your life? Do you need to change the way you are living your life? That you're following down a track that you know is a dead end? Do you need to make amends with someone that you've hurt? The good news is that while time is of the essence, there's still time. Amen.